Hello and welcome to WYBCXDL Radio. This is Save It For Now. I'm DJ to the 4th. We've got another education interview for you today. Our guest on the show is Sarah Fine. She's an education researcher, a writer, a teacher, and a lot of other things. She directs a teacher prep program at the High Tech High Graduate School of Education. She co-authored a book pretty recently called In Search of Deeper Learning, The Quest to Remake the American High School. And I mess up that title several times in several different ways during this interview. Um, But it's a great book. You should read it. Highly recommend. She's also an alum of Kinhaven Music School, which is a summer music camp that I attended in Vermont for a few summers while I was in high school. Um, We talk about it a bit in the interview, so get ready for that. Yeah, well, we'll hop right to it. Thanks for joining us. Hope you enjoy. You direct a teacher program teacher prep program right in San Diego. Could you talk a little bit about that, what the the job looks like on a day-to-day basis and overarching goals with it? Sure, yeah. Um, So I run, I'm the director of the San Diego Teacher Residency, which is a fairly new teacher preparation pathway out of the High Tech High Graduate School of Education in San Diego. Um, So you kind of, in order to know to understand what we're doing, you need to know a little bit about our school network out of which our grad school and the program emerged. So High Tech High is a network of 16 K-12 schools around San Diego County. Um, our first high school was founded in the year 2000 and our the design of our schools is intentionally trying to disrupt what we might name as like the traditional grammar of schooling, right? So um, we believe in integrating Uh, across disciplines. We believe in integrating students together in ways that don't usually happen, especially in high schools, given that students are often tracked by perceived ability. Um, We don't believe in standardized testing, at least to a point. I mean, we do it because we have to, but um, we believe in authentic assessment, performances of learning, exhibitions, work in the real world, kind of trying to break down the boundaries between school and the world beyond. And so our, our, our design, we are, um, entirely project-based. So rather than having units of study that kind of culminate in like an essay or a test, we have units of study that are, that culminate in some kind of exhibition of a product, an artifact, a play, a book, um, you know, a science museum exhibit, something something that ideally has real authentic use in the world. Um, and so High Tech High's graduate school emerged um, about five or six years after our school network started to build because there was so much interest in the model we were trying to to build. A lot of folks wanting to learn with and from us, um, sort of do their professional learning experience in a really disruptive, innovative environment. So um, our graduate school was the very first grad school of ed to emerge out of K-12 rather than out of like a traditional, you know, university, IHE. Um, And the program that I run is a fairly new addition to our grad school, but we have long wanted to be able to run a pre-service preparation pathway where we're really wrapping around novice teachers um, for a full year or more, giving them a really immersive experience um, where they're practicing teaching, where theory and practice are really tightly connected, um, where they're learning to teach in a very innovative, disruptive environment so we can kind of get them out of the gate with some different assumptions about how classrooms should look and feel. Um, so that's been my work the last two and a half years has been building, designing and building that program um, and starting to grow it so that we have more of a presence in our region and, and nationally and so on. And day to day, I don't know, my life is 
crazy, frankly, because we are, we're a small and scrappy institution and we're a small and scrappy program, especially because we're new. And so it has been amazing because I have had the, the opportunity to kind of like wear all the hats and think about how all the different parts of our program fit together. Everything from like, what courses should our students take in what order taught by whom and how is that connected to their clinical practice and also like who do we want in our program and how do we get them and how do we budget for it and how do we build out sustainably and um, how do we prove to our you know accreditors that we're doing good work like all the different pieces that go into a program have been um, kind of the playground I'm I'm on and as we're as we're growing, we're starting to like build out a staff um, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. But I'm also really it's been a really um, amazing experience to build something from the ground up where we're trying to reimagine teacher preparation in this very different kind of context. Yeah, that's awesome. Who are the kinds of people who you end up having in the program? And while they're in the program, I assume they, they're teaching in some form. Do they stay or distribute themselves elsewhere? Well, you may or you probably already know this stat because it's pretty widely quoted, but um, the teacher workforce in the U.S. is disproportionately white and female. So across the U.S., we have around 80 percent of all teachers identify as white. Um, and it's it's uh, we're moving toward rapidly toward having uh, more than half of students in our schools identifying as people of color. And so we have this dramatic mismatch between who is teaching students and who our students and communities are. And, and we know from research that. Um, it's really important for students to have role models that they that they see themselves in, right? Windows and mirrors. Um, and we also know that having teachers of color has a really positive effect, especially on students of color, but on everyone. Um, and we also know something about the, the barriers that keep uh, people of color entering and or staying in the teaching profession. So um, that's kind of a roundabout way of getting to your question. But uh, our program is really, I think, singularly focused on trying to recruit folks from underrepresented backgrounds into the profession and then support them uh, through some of the challenges and barriers that historically have kept them out of the teaching workforce. And so, for example, we try to provide support for some of the prerequisite testing that the state requires, um, which is one barrier. We do a lot of recruiting from the paraprofessional pools. So folks who are working in and around schools, supporting um, at specialists, working in aftercare, after school programs, working at the Y. So people who we know already have a love of working with young people, but have not yet found a pathway to sort of full, full living wage employment. Um, and we are really trying to, you know, there's a reason why we call ourselves the San Diego Teacher Residency. We're trying to foster folks who have deep knowledge of local communities and then, you know, feed them back into the communities to serve the communities that they come from um, in the belief that, that those are going to be the most effective teachers, especially once they're equipped with a, a repertoire of skills um, from the program. And so we are, we've been pretty successful. We have around 65% of our students right now are people of color, around 80% of them are coming from the region and, and then staying in the region beyond their residency year. Um, and residency itself, you know, for folks who don't know too much about teacher preparation is a fairly innovative development in um, what it looks like to prepare teachers in the United States, because historically, Number one, there's a lot of loopholes. So a lot of people enter the teacher workforce with very little support and training at all because teacher shortages mean that we have this like disastrous plethora of alternative certification programs that mean that folks are getting into classrooms with almost no training and support, which, you know, means that like we have a warm body in a room with kids, but 
that warm body, regardless of how talented they may be, usually leaves because it's really overwhelming to do that job um, without training. And then we also have like sort of traditional teacher preparation programs run through big universities, which some of which are really high quality, some of which are not, but they tend on the whole to be very disconnected from practice. They tend to be taught by professors who have not, it has been years since they've been in classrooms themselves, if at all. Um, and they, they might be teaching the most current pedagogies and drawing in the most current theory, which we think is really important, but they're rarely in close communication with the places where their students are doing their practice teaching. And so there's often this big disconnection. So the residency model is trying to sort of overcome that um, by drawing together practice and theory really tightly, by having faculty who students learn from who are actually in practice teachers or folks who are very tightly connected to in practice teachers, um, by having a whole year a practice, right? So our folks normally, like in a lot of pr traditional programs, students might, if they're lucky, do half a year of student teaching. Um, sometimes it's as short as like 10 or 12 weeks. Uh, and so that we don't think that's nearly enough. I mean, a year, frankly, isn't even enough to really prepare someone for the complexity of, of what teaching is. But um, the residency model, we think, is, is a much more promising pathway to attract, recruit, retain folks that we most want in the profession. Yeah, I find that highly relatable. Um, I guess I should mention I've started teaching this year uh, through a program at the Yale School of Music. It's called Music in Schools. I work with a group called Mars Chorale that is students from New Haven Public Schools, grades 4 through 12 are, are who we work with. And um, I'm one of a large team of undergrads who are sort of there as facilitators within rehearsal in a normal time. We have a director who's, she's more trained and more experienced than we are. Um, and because we're virtual now, uh, we're, we've started doing private lessons in addition to the normal rehearsals. So I have five private students who I meet with over Zoom weekly. You know, that's been a whole experience. I can imagine. Yeah. So I'm, the idea comes up in the book a lot that teachers and students sort of learn in similar ways of needing to be given the space to let their unique experience and or interests play into what they're doing in school. You know, that comes up in the context of teacher training, but also just in the classroom. How does that play out? What, what advice do you have to offer? Yeah, yeah, that's a really important strand in our book. I'm glad you picked up on it. I mean, if you think about the ways that teachers in US schools tend to receive training and support, it's like death by PowerPoint over and over again, right? Like if you've, if you've ever, if you're the, the son of teachers, you probably know, um, you know, like PDs, the professional development sessions that they may go to once a month or once a week, um, most often, uh, at least historically, have been sort of like knowledge dumped into the heads of passive learners. Like, this is how you're supposed to teach math. Here's the latest development. Um, and, you know, that that works just as poorly for adults as it does for students, right? And yet there is powerful coherence around that model because we, you know, literally for centuries, at least in the West, we have this notion that teaching is transmission and that the role of teacher is to profess their knowledge to their students and that, that students are empty slates, have these like, you know, empty minds ready to be filled with knowledge and that, that what it means to be assessed or to perform your knowledge is to kind of regurgitate that back. Um, and it's really only in the last hundred plus years that the learning sciences have started to catch up um, and, and sort of present a very different paradigm of what learning actually, how learning actually happens, the conditions that support it, the neuroscience um, behind what's actually happening in the brain. 
when when people learn and to your point, there's a huge amount of continuity across the lifespan, right? Like, yes, adult learners have different developmental needs than children do. Um, but there are also some very big universal truths around how learning happens and the conditions that produce it that we tend to ignore, at least historically have ignored, right? So definitely in our program, in the program I run, and in the schools that I, um, the context, the high, tech, high context that our students are learning to teach in, we have a, an emphasis on what we call symmetry, which is just the idea that like learners need to, if, if you're trying to teach something, you need to experience the kind of learning you're then trying to produce for your students. Um, and so at a very concrete level, one of the really brilliant ways I think that High Tech High has developed to create and sustain symmetry is that we have what we call a new teacher odyssey at the beginning of each school year. It's in August before kids return to school. And any teacher who is new to the High Tech High Network, regardless of whether they're a novice teacher um, or a teacher who has never taught at High Tech but has 10 years of experience, participates in it's a whole week. And the first thing that happens is what we call a project slice. And so groups of these folks are facilitated by some of our most expert project-based learning teachers in actually doing a mini project themselves. So like for two days, they're investigating the dynamics of the border wall, which of course is, you know, part of San Diego's um, ecosystem in many ways. So they're they're down at the border. They're doing empathy interviews with folks who are crossing. They're taking photographic evidence of what's going on. Um, they're doing research into the history of our border. They're gathering statistics. They're asking questions. Right there, and the project would be geared toward producing something. So maybe a mini documentary in this case, or a photo photo essay or something like that. Um, but these are adults, right? These are adults who are doing a project themselves, being facilitated by somebody who's who's making all the moves and in incorporating all the pieces you would want in a project that, that young people would do. And of course, in our Odyssey experience, there are a lot of moments where we kind of step back and have meta moments with our teachers about like, how did that experience that you just had as a learner of talking to people on the street or of collaborating with a group that you don't know well, like how did that play out for you? What does that mean about your own teaching and so on? But it's a really powerful way to get people thinking about teaching and learning differently. It's not sufficient to turn them into, like it doesn't magically turn into them, them into like disruptive, innovative, project-based teachers, but it's a really strong foundation because they actually are experiencing the thing that they're going to try to do as a learner themselves. And they're, they're kind of grappling with what it means to be positioned differently and to be working towards something more authentic. Um, and they're kind of, they have opportunities to, to think through some of the dilemmas that come up with that kind of learning. Cause it's not, it's not just magic, right? Like there's all kinds of new issues that crop up when, for example, you're trying to have students collaborate in deep, sustained ways with diverse peers. Like that's not all roses. We all know that. Um, it's important. It's like mapped onto what 21st century life looks like, but that that is a whole skill set unto itself and a whole it presents a whole set of dilemmas that teachers who are teaching in more traditional ways don't really have to deal with. So that is one of the the ways that we try to like walk our talk. Um, and then in the program I run, we do that all the time. So every time we introduce a new sort of learning routine to our to our teacher students, our adult students, we do it with them. Um, and our, you know, my math instructors who are trying to teach like really deep constructivist math pedagogy that looks really different from what folks usually do, like they do a lot of math together with an expert facilitator. They're not just talking about how you would teach math differently. They're actually doing it as learners and then unpacking that experience and then taking that turn to thinking about how they design for their own students. Um, so it's a pretty different way of thinking about teaching and learning, I think, than 
students get one thing, adults get another thing. All of it is kind of subpar. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess that last point about teachers learning together um, seems like something that could be widely applicable across the country. I feel like while I was reading the book, I was looking for ways that things that these more disruptive schools are doing could be incorporated into schools everywhere. Um, as context, I went to a magnet performing arts high school in Houston. I loved it. It was great. I think a lot of the things that you might say are wrong in the way that teaching happens in traditional schools were probably somewhat present, but um, not to the extent that my learning was severely inhibited. And I think the the whole chapter in the book on periphery as core was something that was very incorporated at my school that maybe I didn't realize how impactful that was, but is also sort of the point of the school. Um, <laughs> so, so maybe it's obvious, but what are maybe some ways that the kinds of things you're doing in your program could be incorporated nationwide? Yeah, that's a great question. And just to go back to your point, I, I mean, for folks who haven't read the book, one of the most surprising findings that we stumbled into really was that a lot of the most powerful lasting learning happening in K-12 schools is happening, especially high schools and middle schools. Um, is happening like at the, what you said, at the periphery, in the margin. So in extracurriculars and in the arts and um, in elective courses and even in sports to some extent. Like when you ask kids, when in your day does time flow by quickly? You're not watching the clock. You feel deeply engaged. You see yourself in the work. Uh, you're, you're working towards something that feels authentic to you. You feel like you've, you can see your growth and track your growth over time. Um, you see skill development that you're proud of, like the answers inevitably are not math class or science class. They're like orchestra, school newspaper, drama club, uh, green engineering, you know, all, all the things that we tend to, as a field, ignore or, or overlook um, in our quest, our ever quest to like strengthen, you know, math and, and English language arts in our schools. So um, I'm not surprised and I'm excited to hear that you had such a powerful experience at a magnet school. And I, and I think that question of how do you embed choice um, within what is effectively a compulsory context, right? Schools, we're, we're not, schools are not going anywhere. I mean, we might be on the verge of changing some of the modalities in which kids learn and all of that because of COVID. But, you know, schools, schooling is compulsory. So there is a way in which K-12 schools, there, there is an element of, of uh, forced decision-making there for everybody involved for the most part. And the question is, how do you, what can you do within that, right? Because kids don't get to choose while they go to school. But then within the schools, there's a lot more opportunities for embedded choice than we might imagine. And I really don't think those only opportunities are like expanding the repertoire of elective courses that you might offer. Like, I think there are ways, and I see it in our program and in high-tech schools and, and other schools around the country, for teachers to powerfully embed choice within even traditional academic content areas, right? Like kids don't all need to be reading the same book at the same pace at the same time and show their understanding and learning the same way. I mean, that that's, that's like so much in the DNA of how we have structured our schools. And yet there's really, there's literally no basis for that being the best way to promote learning. Um, and so, you know, yes, teachers need to have some shared 
scope and sequence around what skills or understandings, um, dispositions, and so on they want kids to develop. But even within that, like, you know, to, to articulate a skill like being able to analyze a text in light of its historical significance and discuss the ways that that text might provide a different perspective on what's happening around you in the world, like that arguably is a pretty important skill to have. But you could you can imagine any number of ways in any number of texts um, and any number of themes and topics that kids might use in order to practice that skill. And, um, you know, I would say my experience at High Tech High has convinced me that the more opportunity we have for kids to make meaningful choices within, you know, within constraints, the, the, the better off we are, because, you know, one kid might be really interested in the Russian Revolution. Another kid might be really interested in, you know, what's going on right now in Venezuela, and they could be practicing the same set of skills. Um, but, you know, when when we make informed choices, we're, we're more um, invested in the outcomes and more engaged and so on. And we can learn from each other. And, and I just think that like lockstep model of education is so profound. It's not even outdated. It was just never any good. I think, though, it requires of teachers a whole different repertoire of skills. It requires us to let go of a lot of the control that teachers are used to having um, and find that control elsewhere, right? Maybe control is the wrong word, but like find the coherence and find what you're trying to do as a teacher in other places other than, you know, directing the the conversation around one thing that you want all kids to to, to be able to say by the end of a given class, uh, and, I, and I think letting go of that control is something that takes time and support and resources and models. And um, there needs to be sort of freedom to take risks. I mean, the whole system basically needs to do a, a whole lot of rapid learning that is very hard to do under the conditions that we currently have. So I, I don't I don't know if that's answering your question about what can be exported. But I, I think that's our project in a lot of ways is to uh, of our schools and of our program is like to not just blow up what is, but to try to figure out like, how do we do a good job of what could be? And then how do we sort of share that knowledge in a way that helps others to, to do the same? In the book, one of the things you talk about is this disconnect between what's happening in high schools because of what high school teachers think college professors want their students to know. And that's one of the problems of approach. I'd love to hear your thoughts on anything related to that. And then Maybe we could get into how um, the college admission process might be able to encourage learning for its intrinsic value rather than these other markers that, that you've talked about and what that would look like. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not an expert. I think there's some folks who have really interesting work on that piece around what do college professors report actually valuing in their students coming in. Um, but I do, I do know enough to say it's mostly skills and sort of habits of mind. It's not about content. It's not, I mean, college professors are not saying, oh my God, my students never read Hamlet. Like they're saying, oh my God, my students don't know how to think critically about a text in light of historical information, or my students don't know how to get started when they're trying to write an argument, or my students don't know how to build on each other's ideas uh, in a seminar. And so, you know, I, I think that's really heartening actually. Um, and that certainly was my experience in, as an undergrad um, was it was really, I mean, you know, content knowledge matters. You, you need to know something in order to be able to understand something. So it's not that kids never need to learn anything in particular, like skills don't live in a vacuum. But also there are, like I said, there's so many ways to get there. And there's 
I think in particular, I don't see any of the research about what is valued in college having like negating the idea that we could go for depth rather than breadth in high school, like rather than racing through, you know, the surface level understanding of developments in biological sciences over the course of a year, why couldn't students do deep dives into like genetic sequencing and, and along the way learn some of the key skills and understandings that has to do, um, you know, and, and like really learn how to think like scientists and understand the scientific process as something that's dynamic and political and recursive and um, all the things that are kind of mapped onto what real science is rather than regurgitating, you know, 250 pages worth of information in a textbook at the end of the year. Like, I actually don't think that higher ed provides much of a, an excuse for doing that. But to your point, I do think that higher ed continues to be in the game of sorting students uh, based on pretty superficial markers of, of understanding and knowledge and skill, right? Like I'm, I'm encouraged by the movement to, to do SAT, ACT optional in, in a lot of schools, especially a lot of big schools. I think that's a really important development. I'm encouraged by, there's a, a group called the um, Mastery Performance Consortium, I think, or yeah, I think that's what it's called, but Mastery Transcript Consortium, excuse me. So I'm encouraged by the idea that there are a growing number of K-12 schools that are, are trying to like leverage some collective action um, and work with college admissions offices to come up with different ways of seeing the values uh, and skills that students come with rather than just using like GPA as, as the kind of be all end all or, or the number of extracurriculars you participated in. I think um, I know Harvard has been leading the charge a little bit on in their admissions office on trying to value service, trying to value um, the work that students do that a lot of less privileged students do in taking care of siblings or working, bringing in money for their families. I do think that there's like a growing recognition that the ways colleges have considered applicants are, are inequitable at best and like profoundly problematic at worst. Um, but I also think, you know, students are still scrambling to rack up numbers of APs. Students are still obsessing over whether they were, you know, fourth in their class or eighth in their class. I think there's still a lot of pressure in high income communities for students to like get involved in as many extracurricular activities as possible. I mean, I think that idea of like more is more rather than like, actually, no, like less can be more if you do it well kind of thing. I, I think that's still a culture we have to push push back against. That that could really help K-12 schools to make different decisions because certainly K-12 schools, a lot of them are accountable to the parent communities and the pressures that come from those parent communities. And those parents are in turn kind of like interpreting what they see as what it will take for their kids to have advantage um, in college, the scramble for college. Um, so if we can message differently what colleges care about, you know, and, and really like walk that talk, I think then parents in turn can maybe relax about, you know, you know, students can do one or two things well and follow what they're really interested in. If we're less focused on, you know, summative markers like GPA and SAT and more focused on portfolios of work that demonstrate certain kinds of thinking, I think we could go a pretty long way toward changing the culture. Yeah. And on culture, I found it really interesting, the section of the book that talked about, I think there's there's a program called Portrait of a Graduate, that you mentioned, that asks community leaders to come together and figure out an underlying value system for what everyone 
in their district should know upon or value upon graduating. That seems really reasonable and productive to me, but I would guess that that's not happening in most of the country right now. Are there ways maybe to incentivize school districts to do something about that on a larger level? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think what's interesting about Portrait of a Graduate is it's it's not just about the outcome. I mean, it's nice to have, you know, a, a one-pager that's really clear about the core competencies or habits of mind that a given community or school or district wants their graduates to have. Obviously, that then can although it doesn't always become an anchor for the work and a compass for making decisions. But it's also the process, right? Like American schools are so value-laden, but we, we spend so little time unpacking the like thicket of, of different values and competing priorities that frame our schools and our communities. And so I actually think um, having been involved briefly in some work around portrait of a graduate type work at a school I was at, it was actually the conversations that that process made us have that was the biggest value, at least for the educators, was like realizing that kids were moving from class to class or from grade to grade within the same quite small school. Um, And each of those spaces had wildly different priorities and notions of what they were going for and ways of valuing what students were doing. And I mean, that's just that is unfortunately the reality of most of our schools. Um, They're pretty weak mechanisms. They're very incoherent often. But you think about the impact it has on kids, right? Like there are there are certain, I guess, unfortunate core values of our culture around individualism and meritocracy, fake meritocracy that that get communicated pretty consistently. But then beyond that, it's like in one class, what matters is the quality of your thinking and reasoning and the ways in which you engage meaningfully with the thinking and reasoning of your peers. And, you know, it's really clear from the stated and unstated things that happen in that classroom that that's what matters. And then you move to the next class and it's about what you get on your quizzes, right? And it's it's about, you know, who came out on top and the scramble for tests. And I think the work of conversations around values, shared values, and shared ways of actualizing those values is really important. Um, I wish it could happen at a a larger scale. Like, I think there's so much variation within our communities, and to some extent, it's, it's interesting, important variation. And on the other hand, most of the countries you see that have very powerful education systems that are producing equitable and and strong outcomes for students have come together as an entire country and like had those conversations and come out with some frameworks like there's some really interesting work happening within some of the Canadian provinces around scope and sequence of curriculum and trying to like go from 100 things that every 10th grader needs to know and be able to do to like four key ones, and then giving lots of choice to teachers um, in, in how to get there and choice to students in how to get there. That's that's worth, worth doing, I think. And I, I do think it's happening in pockets, but it's certainly not happening at scale. Yeah, that's that's the challenge, I guess. Um, <laughs> I, I kind of want to go back to the, the skills content conversation for a second. Um, it's something I think about in my lessons. A lot of my students have never been in an ensemble never seen music, can't read music, but are, you know, teenagers, fully formed, conscious human beings already. Um, And it's always a struggle to go between, okay, I want them, I want this to be about them 
improving at the music that they're excited about and me teaching them skills that will help them hopefully later on just be able to pick up music faster what is maybe what maybe does the balance look like well i think you're the way you just articulated that is beautiful uh, right like f- i think what you said holds a lot of the answers which is finding some balance between engaging students in authentic work that's developmentally appropriate and gets them excited and also embedding opportunities ideally within that right like in order to get to the place you really want to get to to be able to perform that piece you're super excited about you've heard performed um, it will benefit you to spend some focused careful practice on this more foundational part this more foundational piece that I think in the translation to classrooms is pretty clear and we write about it a lot in the book which is a lot of teachers, not through any fault of their own, but through lack of training and, and through kind of our shared culture that we all absorb without even knowing it, treat learning competencies as a kind of ladder. Like you can't do critical thinking until you are a fluent reader, right? Like like they just sort of, they look at like a Bloom's taxonomy or kind of like kids who are really um, have big deficits in one area or another. And they think, well, we got to, we got to fix the deficit before we can ever get to the, the more interesting, authentic, complicated work. Um, and that's just not true, right? Like, but on the other hand, you wouldn't only do the complicated work without addressing the deficits, right? So like, for example, I taught 10th grade English for a number of years in D.C., and a lot of my students were struggling readers, um, and a small number of them had actual uh, neurodiversity that meant that that was kind of part of their cognition. But most of them, it was because of gaps in what they had been, what they had experienced in their schooling. There was nothing at all wrong with, with their thinking. And the, the really complicated but, I think, important goal that at least the, my colleagues kept in mind was like, these are 10th graders. There's nothing wrong with their thinking or reasoning. Like we can support them in getting sharper, but they want to have interesting, rich conversations about the kind of like existential stuff that teenagers want to talk about. They want to talk about themselves. They want to talk about identities. They want to talk about like who's controlling the world and why they're so angry at the, the powers that be. And, you know, they can see that in text and they need to become stronger readers because a lot of them read at fourth grade level in 10th grade. So the like million dollar question is how do you, organize learning so that there is a destination that is compelling to kids and so that they have enough regular opportunities to do work that is truly engaging is meeting them developmentally where they're at and capitalizing what they are able to do and convince them that in order to do that cool stuff they also need to have opportunities for discipline practice to to sort of fill in some of those gaps um so you know that that's a really hard puzzle, but I think it's the most important one, right? Because, I mean, the approach where like all we do with struggling readers is work with them on foundational reading skills all day long is just a losing proposition. And I don't even think I need to say more about why, right? Like that that's just, it's dehumanizing, it's demeaning, it's not letting kids shine in the ways that they can. It's shining a light on what they probably are painfully aware of as a deficit and also letting them remain at fourth grade reading level in 10th grade is also doing them a disservice in their lives. Um, and, you know, given the, the brilliance they're capable of. And so we've got, we've got to find some way of like bringing those two things together, teach the kids how to read music, but also make sure that that's balanced out with actually getting to perform and play music and be joyful in what you're learning. Um, because otherwise they won't have any motivation to continue it. Yeah. 
feel like that there's a path forward. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, you know, you've mentioned um, a lot of your work looks at serving students from underserved communities. I'm curious about how you evaluate whether that's working, both you and, and as in you and as in a school or a school district. What metrics might we look at for, for figuring out whether educational practices are actually resulting in equitable mm-hmm. outcomes? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think you need to look at a lot of things because I think the things we care most about are what folks in the like improvement econometrics world might describe as lagging indicators, like deeply lagging indicators, right? We don't know. I mean, all of us, I think most teachers, if they spend some time thinking about it, what they want is for their students to be able to like competently confidently and joyfully navigate 21st century life like as you know as agents in the economic sphere and in the civic sphere and in the social sphere right like be able to deal you know be able to interpret and make independent choices about um for example voting and civic life to be able to get living get and keep living wage jobs and have choices about which living wage jobs they want um you know we want our students to be able to deal with competing sources of information and complicated feelings and come out the other side not having done harm to themselves or others, right? They, like, there's all these big picture things we care about that are tied to the kinds of experiences students have in adulthood. But of course, we don't, number one, those are hard to measure, period. And number two, the ones that we can measure, we don't have information on for a very long time. Uh, and so I think what a lot of K-12 schools do right now is use the proxy of like college acceptance and college uh, persistence as the closest they can get in the nearer term, Um, which I think is not, you know, there's some advantages there. Like, you know, college is, at least when you think about economic um, competitiveness in this market, like, yes, if you have a four-year degree, there's still evidence that, you know, you're more likely to be able to gain and keep a living wage job throughout your life. So, so there are some things that obviously that, that matters for, but um, I think we need to do a better job on some of those other indicators. Um, And I, one of the things I really have gotten excited about recently is there are some survey instruments out there that measure belongingness in schools. Right. And like, these are things you can actually, you know, you can do this survey a couple times a year throughout several years and actually get a a picture of students, which is right. So do students feel seen and known? Do they feel connected to each other, to the community? Um, Are they engaged in what they're doing? Like those kind, those are kind of self-reported indicators that are in some ways not as clear as things like, you know, who and how are you employed at age 35? But I do think they're really important because I think that they give us a picture of the damage and or liberation that's happening in schools in real time and kids spend a lot of time in schools. So like having a high sense of belonging and all the things that come with that is profoundly important. And I would wager, although I don't have the evidence to support it, probably quite correlated with some of those other things. Cause if you feel seen and valued and connected, you are less likely to drop out. You are less likely to be chronically absent. You are more likely to actually be learning Um, if you feel that the adults around you care for you and know who you actually are, you're more likely to engage in the learning activities that they design for you and so on. So I I do think that that is one like kind of in the moment process indicator we could be looking at. Um, 
I think like foundational literacy and numeracy matter, numeracy matter. Like I, I don't, wouldn't want to leave this interview people saying like, oh, Sarah Fine doesn't care that kids can read and compute. But, but I think we just overweight those. Like, I, I think they matter, but they should matter as like one part of a giant portfolio of things that we care about knowing in terms of how students are doing in schools. So I, I do think that data matters. I don't think we should stop measuring it, although we could do a better job of measuring it, I think. Um, but ideally, you know, when you look at like, how are, how is an individual kid doing in a given school community and how is our school community doing overall? You're looking at like a dashboard of maybe 15 or 20 different things that can tell a story, right? And then, then you can disaggregate and get interested and say like, well, why are our Latinx boys not experiencing a high sense of belonging in this school? That's really clear. And why are our Asian American students like outperforming everybody in terms of numeracy, but you know, they're reporting not feeling connected to their peers. Like, you know, you can then do some interesting work that could lead to positive change. Um, anyway, I, I'm i a big fan of like lots of different sources of data because if we like overweight any one source of data, we're, we're overweighting one source, of, you know, one set of values. And that, that historically has been really problematic, I think. Yeah. Well, I think bringing up belonging is is a great way to segue to Kinhaven. Um <laughs> I, I'd love to hear a little bit about your experience there and maybe if, if that's had any influence on your career path or, or thoughts on the field. I think certainly for me, it was um, my first summer there, I was 14. It was my first t- like time really being away from family for a long time. And I think at that point, easily felt like the best thing I had ever done. And, and reading yeah, about yeah. Dewey High in, in the book and all this like project-based learning um, one quote I, I noted was a vision where the boundaries between work and play are highly permeable. It all just felt, I, I understood <laughs> what that meant um, and thought about Kinhaven a lot. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, um, I think Kinhaven saved me, number one. I, re- I really do. I think in high school, so Kinhaven is this like idyllic hippie, hi- at least hippie inspired or hippie uh, founded, uh, chamber music camp in Vermont. And I was there for three, I think three, maybe four summers, um, in middle and high school. And, um, yeah, I agree. I think, I think it saved me number one, because I did not feel a high sense of belonging, uh, in my high school environment. Um, you know, I wasn't an outcast, but I basically just flew under the radar and had a couple of good friends and, tried as hard as possible not to not to be noticed because the culture was incredibly competitive and incredibly materialistic and um, just normed around values that didn't fit what I wanted to be. But I didn't have any alter like, you know, if that were to have been my only environment, then if you don't feel a high sense of belonging, then it inevitably becomes kind of tied to your sense of self-worth. Whereas Kinhaven and, and to some extent, my like during the year music activities that were happening on the weekends um, gave me a totally different view of like what uh, what it meant to, to like interact with other humans and like I felt valued and seen and I felt uh, you know talented but I don't think it was like m- about being more or less talented than anybody else it was somehow that community does an incredibly strong job with at least it did when I was there 20 plus years ago um just wrapping everybody around in this sense of community and belongingness and togetherness and what we're trying to produce in our music is greater than the sum of what any one of us can produce alone. 
which is always true in music, but actually I think I've experienced contexts where even though you are technically producing music together, it's still kind of about who's the best, you know, who's who's in what chair in the orchestra and so on. And and Ken Haven just manages beautifully to to um avoid all of that or a lot of it. Um so that yeah, I think I think when I first encountered High Tech High, I did not I I didn't recognize it for a few years, but some of what I loved about that school network was like an echo of that, but in a compl- in a public school context, which you know I had just never seen before. Um and you know, we we have lots of things to work on. High Tech High is not a utopia, nor I'm guessing is Kinhaven. If you if you really look under the hood, I'm sure there's all kinds of patterns that play out there as they do in the in the broader world. But I think one thing High Tech High does extremely well is helping all students feel connected to each other and to the adults in the building, feel known and seen. And that goes a really long way. Like I, I can give one quick example, which is uh, before I started the program I run, um, I decided to go back to the classroom for a chunk of time because I had just finished my doctorate. I hadn't actually been a teacher for quite a long time other than with adults. So, and I thought, well, if I'm going to start a, a program for novice teachers in this high tech high network, I need to like walk my talk a little bit. So I took on a maternity leave position um, and taught for, for five months for half a year with a group of seniors at one of high tech high schools. And there was this assembly and this, for some reason, this moment just sticks with me. I had, uh, there was this assembly. Um, it was kind of an open, it was like an ad hoc moment. We had, I don't know, we, we got all the seniors together in the gathering space in the school after like a day where they were working on their college applications, but nobody had bothered to plan it. Um, or nobody had remembered to plan it. So we we're like, oh shoot, what are we going to do? All right, we're just going to have an open mic. Uh, so we, we pulled in like the karaoke machine and the microphone and we were like, okay, guys, like, you know, anybody can come up and say whatever they want. Uh, and we just like closed our eyes and prayed that it went well, right? Because we had an hour to fill. And, you know, the first thing that happened was that a couple of the kids you would expect come up in front of the group, right? Like the kids who you know to have high social status in the school and in that community and like store the, you know, senior year, like, we love you guys. I can't believe we're leaving soon. And then... All of these kids who I knew from my classes, who in any other school context, I think would have been incredibly marginalized. So I had these twins, both of them were on the autism spectrum, uh, had speech impediments, um, were on modified curriculum. But of course, in our schools, we don't separate those kids out. We just try to fold them in and support them within our classes. They got up and they started talking and they did, uh, they turned on a song and started lip syncing and the audience, like these seniors were genuinely supportive. Like they, they had their phones up, they were doing it, they were clapping and it was not ironic clapping. It was like these kids who I just can only imagine how marginalized they would have felt in so many other high school communities, right? Like felt deeply confident. Like they, they of their own volition, get up in front of this whole crew with no planning or training. And they, you know, they felt like celebrated and seen. And I, I, of course, I'm like standing in the back weeping because I'm like, oh my God, this school does not have everything right. But they have this part of this community so right. Like, I just love the fact that this is a space where these kids feel so deeply embedded, even though they're not going to go to college. And even though they're, you know, so, and here I am weeping again, because every time I think about it, I'm like, that is what this school does. That is what Kinhaven does too, I think, in a different way. It's that kind of like deep sense of belongingness that just really, I think, is the foundation for what schools should be doing. I think you can build on top of that almost anything you want. 
Um, and if you don't have that, you are so profoundly limited. It doesn't matter like how ambitious your curriculum is. If kids don't feel seen and known and connected, I just think you're, you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I definitely also had that kind of experience at Ken Haven and, and really at my high school as well. Um, the open mic vibe is we, we had these things called happenings maybe once a month. I think they're modeled after something like John Cajun that the, 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 the like experimental black mountain college did. I think anyway, it's, it's like once a month, there's an open mic sort of thing. And you know, that there will be like a Halloween themed one where there's a costume contest or a holiday one where people go up and sing songs and, um, or dance and, and the whole school comes out, everybody screams the whole time. And yeah, it's nice to know that there, there are schools that are doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think more schools could do, I mean, I think schools need to be working on that. Like everybody talks it relationships, relationships, relationships. You talk to any educator, they're going to say relationships first, any school principal, but a, how they conceive of relationships really varies. Like, what does a relationship mean? Like, that you know that a kid likes to play basketball after school and you ask him how basketball's going every time you see him in the hall? Or is it, like, much deeper than that? Like, you have supported that kid in community circles through trauma in their life. You know, I mean, there's just relationships can be superficial or not. Um, and relationships among kids, too, right? And teachers play a pretty critical role. Not the only role, but, like, teachers can create conditions where kids forge really meaningful relationships with each other. Or not. And and um, that's something I'm like very aware of in the program I run because we're totally cohort based. We're trying to do that same thing. We want, you know, on the one hand, we have standards for the quality teachers we want to produce. So it's a little different than K-12 schools where everybody's welcome, you know. But on the other hand, like once you're in the program, we are trying to have that cohort be a place of like radical empathy and openness and where folks can work through stuff together um, not not just like kumbaya either, right? Like there's a lot of stuff as we're talking about our racial identities and our different experiences, the ways we have perpetuated or experienced depression and so on that can be really heavy. But, you know, facilitation is everything. Like you can create the conditions for that to be productive and to lead to really profound learning or or not. Or you can alienate people uh, like irreparably. So it's it's a heavy load. I think teachers aren't always aware of how how heavy a load it should be, <laughs> like thinking about that. Um, but once they are, I think, you know, you can only go up. It's there's, there's a lot of amazing work that folks can do once they're really thinking about like how a status playing out in this classroom. What is my role in trying to change the patterns of status here? How do I cultivate really rich relationships with kids and so on? Yeah, those feel like such integral values to anything that I would want to be happening in school that I was in or just like if any work I continue to do I guess a lot of my peers who are interested in education talk about you know like wanting to go into policy do you have advice for young people who want to do something to improve education um, and how to incorporate those sorts of values in uh don't go into policy <laughs> well that's the wrong answer but like I think people say that because Education and teaching in particular is still coded in our society as a fairly low status profession. And so if you're somebody who sees themselves, you know, who's at an elite college or so on and is seeking a certain kind of status, 
then it's it's easier to say like I want to be a policymaker because that sounds kind of complicated and cool compared to I want to be a teacher which although teaching is incredibly complicated and cool we don't recognize it's not part of our cultural DNA in the U.S. Um, so I think that plays out I, I certainly meet a lot of young people who say that too and number one we do need policymakers in education who are have teaching experience deep teaching experience and actually know. Uh, what happens because too often policymakers are like profoundly disconnected from classrooms, but like become a teacher. I mean, teaching is so intellectually fascinating, like for, for folks who see themselves as intellectuals. And this happened to me, right? I like graduated from Harvard undergrad, took a teaching job, told myself the story that I was going to get a PhD in English or literature at some point, even went and got my MA over the summers at the Middlebury in literature and then at some point, it, it dawned on me quite gradually, but like there was a, an epiphany moment where I was like, teaching is so is just as complicated and fascinating as literature, actually more, because it's so interdisciplinary and there's literally no field which is not involved and no, you know, you, you, what happens in a classroom when there's 26 different kids coming from 26 different contexts and you and something that you're trying to learn together in the context of a, an organization, which is framed by all these historical contingencies, like that is profoundly interesting from all kinds of levels and incredibly complicated. And it will take a lifetime to even begin to understand and get better at it. Um, so over time, I was like, why, why am I why, why am I telling myself this story about like becoming an English PhD? Like, what am I doing um, you know, that would be the easy road out, like by comparison to this other thing that I'm interested in. So number one, I do think we need to change. I, I think the long, slow work that we need to be doing is like changing how people understand what teaching is or should be, right? Like there are plenty of societies in which teaching, it's not just respected and well-paid. People actually at some fundamental level recognize how complicated a job it is and how profoundly important a job it is. Um, and we have this like underprofessionalized workforce, which kind of exacerbates the problem um, because we have lots of teachers who aren't prepared for the job and aren't necessarily doing a very good job. It doesn't mean they couldn't. Um, some of them could with the right conditions and some of them shouldn't be in the profession at all knowing how important it is. So I guess if you're a young person thinking about a career in education, like just don't apologize for starting in the classroom and like staying there for as long as it takes for you to feel like you really understand something about it. Um, I think we need to be building more career ladders within our schools and our system. Cause I do think if, if we want ambitious credentialed folks with powerful minds uh, in our classrooms, I think we need to recognize that like they shouldn't, and their careers after 40 years doing the exact same thing they started at doing. So I think we need opportunities for teachers to, as they gain skill and knowledge, share, become supports for other teachers, uh, become teachers of teachers. I'd love to see more hybrid roles. And this is like selfish as well as anything else, where like you could be in a higher ed setting or be a policymaker and also teach. Like I think we need some more kind of teacher on special assignment type roles where people can move in and out of the classroom. Whereas now we have this like hierarchical vision that like, oh, you start as a teacher, but if you're really good, like what you're going to end up doing is like, you know, being a superintendent um, and so on. So I, I think there's some ways that like the profession needs to restructure. Uh, but I also just, 
I mean, we need we need all the good people we can get and we need ways to keep them and support them and train them and grow them into the best they can be within the field. That's inspiring. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> this has been really fun, Jonathan. Super, super interesting conversation. I agree. Thank you so much again. So that was my interview with Sarah Fine. She directs the San Diego teacher residency at the High Tech High Graduate School of Education in San Diego. Um, She's just such a compassionate, wise educator, human being. Um, And yeah, it was was really awesome getting to talk to her. So uh, let us know what you thought about the interview. Hope you enjoyed. And catch us again next week. This has been Save It For Now on WIBC XCL Radio. I'm DJ to the fourth. Have a good one.